This is Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So the past few weeks, as we've been working through the gospel of Luke, we've been speaking about realities concerning the kingdom of God. We've been talking about the imminence of the kingdom. It's, it's on its way. The kingdom is, is soon to come. We've been talking about the hiddenness of the kingdom, that if you don't see the king, then you won't see the kingdom. But we also talked about the, the one day, the unveiling that's going to happen of the kingdom, that no matter who you are, you will not be able to miss the coming of the kingdom, right? As lightning flashes across the sky, so will be the coming of the king in his day. And we talked about the clear revealing of that kingdom that is to come. We moved on to attitudes about the kingdom in these parables of the persistent widow who is beseeching God upon his character, beseeching the unjust judge. And then it reveals to us the character of God. And then we talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector, which reveals to us the character of the individuals, seeing the the character of the sinful tax collector and not the character of the self-righteous Pharisee. Well, this morning we're looking at two other events that follow these parables, and there are events that surround them. There are two events here, right? There's the event concerning the children coming to Jesus, and then this, secondly, this rich young ruler. And all about this idea of how does one approach or enter into the kingdom? How does a child draw near? With, with what attitude does a child 
come to their parents. I mean, at one level, this explanation, this illustration, just it, it just speaks volumes. You could talk forever about the ways in which a child approaches their parents with gladness. They are glad to see their parents. There is a fearlessness that comes with a child and their parents. I'm always... Uh, marvel at, you know, uh, my kids think I'm the strongest guy in the world, basically, which is all right right now. They don't know yet. But, uh, you know, you'll grab a kid and we do it. We used to do this thing called kettlebell. You know what kettlebells are? You, you swing them up in the air and I would kettlebell my kids. And so I'd swing them like this and then I'd launch them into the air and catch them. Could you imagine a grown person strong enough to do that with you? Would you ever let someone throw you in the air? Not in a million years. I'm like, get your hands off of me. I'm staying on the ground. But a kid, like, they, they, they're in the hands of their parents. They, they've got fearlessness. I throw them up, you know, and I, and I bobble. And I, Janet doesn't weigh hardly anything. I throw her up and kind of catch her. And she says, do it again. I'm like, are you kidding me? I wouldn't want to do that again. It was terrifying to me. But, but there's the, the child approaches their parent with this sense of, of, of just fearlessness, of just they're glad to be with their parents. They have this attitude. This is the kind of attitude that Jesus says is the attitude of those who are entering the kingdom of God. A child doesn't show up and try to prove their case with their parents saying, you know, I, I'm your kid. or you know, They're not trying to show their merits. But before they even sometimes know how to speak or to articulate, they know how to appeal to their parents because they know their parents love them, their parents care for them. And so they, they just have a very basic approach to their parents. And this, Jesus says, is how we enter the kingdom of God. But to come to Christ in this way is a very humbling approach. And the reality is it's too low for some people to accept The reality that I have to come to Jesus as a child is too humble for many people. The idea that I have to get that low, I don't, I don't get to come to Jesus with any of my swagger saying, look at me, look at all that I've done. Aren't I impressive? God, aren't you happy with me? Don't you, don't you want to congratulate me and all that I've done? A kid doesn't come along like that. A child just humbly approaches their parent knowing I, this parent is what, who provides for me, who takes care of me, who loves me. This is the way the humility, the humbling aspect of coming into the kingdom. How they come saying how great we are and never realizing. It, it's interesting. Somehow that getting low is the highest hurdle for some people. The hurdle that is impossible to climb over is the realization of how low you have to actually confess that you are to even come to Christ. And just so we don't miss that point of this, what it looks like to come to the kingdom as a child, I think this next illustration, this next experience in the life of Jesus, Luke, Luke brings in to show us what coming as a child doesn't look like. And it's the rich young ruler, right? He shares the opposite of entering the kingdom like a child. Here comes the rich young ruler. And we know these narratives are connected. They aren't, they aren't meant to be separated. They're, they're connected because of this language of entering the kingdom. So like in verse uh, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Speaking about entering into the kingdom. 
But then look, look down at verse 24. It says, Jesus, seeing he become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So these stories, they are related. They're, they're meant to be kept together. They're stories about what it looks like to enter the kingdom. The child who approaches like a child is the one who goes in. And then so we don't miss the point. We have this illustration of the rich young ruler and what it looks like to not approach as a child. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What is the difficulty with the rich young ruler? I mean, and I know we've read the whole story, so you've jumped ahead and Jesus spells out to you what the problem is. But think about it for a second. If we, if we could forget for just a second how the rest of the story ends up, what, if you were to listen to this man's pedigree, the, the, the first table of the Ten Commandments, uh, you would be saying, I don't know why this guy, of course this guy gets to enter the kingdom, doesn't he? Look at this righteous, wealthy, well-to-do, respectable, young ruler. I mean, this guy has status. This guy has clout. He's important. He has, he's successful. He's, uh, he's righteous. You know, he said, Jesus doesn't say, uh, call him out on, on all of his breakings of the law. He's, he hasn't committed adultery. He's not a murderer. He doesn't steal. He doesn't bear false witnesses. He honors his parents. This guy has it. He's killing it, right? If we were to say who gets to enter the kingdom, this guy seems like a really good candidate. But Jesus isn't impressed. Jesus is not impressed with his resume. Children don't come with a resume. This guy is coming with this resume. He knows this man's heart. And this knows exactly where to press to reveal this man's error. So where is his error? And our big idea for this morning is that false confidence and welcome competitors will keep you from entering God's kingdoms. False confidence and welcome competitors. I'll kind of work out what that means, what I mean by that statement. I tried to make it a fancy alliteration and I couldn't get there. So just deal with the bad length. False confidence and welcome competitors will keep you from entering God's kingdom. And the first confrontation with the young ruler is his false confidence. After Jesus makes this comment that the man shouldn't call him good, right? He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. It's kind of a, that's a fun way to spend more time on that of how the reality of God reveals himself. The Lord is good. All through the Psalter speaks of God is good. And this man comes along and says, Jesus is good. Is, is this man calling Jesus God? And we find out later, no, he wasn't. He was paying him a false praise. But if, if he had been, this man was seeing something. But he, Jesus works with him on that, corrects him on that. But then he says, you know, what do you know the first... He gives him the first or the second table of the Ten Commandments. You remember the, the Ten Commandments are split into two different tables. Uh, commandments 1 through 4 are what, it look, what love for God looks like. Have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God. Keep the Sabbath. Uh, and keep it holy. These things are our direction towards God. And then commandments 5 through 6, 5 through 10, are the second table. What love for neighbor looks like. So we split the Ten Commandments into two tables. What love for God looks like. What love for neighbor looks like. And Jesus says, you know what love for neighbor looks like? And he lists off these Ten Commandments. And the guy's like, yeah, I've done that since I was a kid. Second table of the law, I, I'm, I'm nailing that. And those are all things that are very easy to see. They're, they're things that are easy to externally keep up. 
You can verify by looking at someone's life. Okay, these things haven't happened. Um, he's he's uh, obedient to the second table of the law. He was a very externally religious, righteous, and well put together young man. And Jesus doesn't say he didn't keep these things in an external fashion. He he's, he is doesn't get condemned for that reason. This man believed that there was merit he could obtain and that he was pretty much on his way of meriting his reward. Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom unless you come like a child. This guy says, well, what more do I need to do? I mean, basically he's saying, hey, uh, how do I get to inherit, inherit eternal life? Look at me, I, I'm, I'm doing real good. Uh, what more do I need to do? And he, he's approaching Jesus as with this false confidence As though Jesus just needed to give him a few more tricks of the trade of how he gets to enter the kingdom. And it was a false confidence, not only because of where Jesus goes next in his discussion with him, but we know that the Ten Commandments are exceedingly broad. That you could go back to, we did a series through the Ten Commandments uh, last summer, two summers ago, and speaking about the reality of how broad those commandments are, speaking about murder, and that the reality is that if you so much as, as hate your brother in your heart, you are guilty of murder. You have broken the Ten Commandments. Speaking about adultery, and Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says that if, if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her in his own heart, he is guilty of adultery. I mean, Jesus takes these Ten Commandments and he broadens them out so that everyone is crushed. No one comes to the Ten Commandments after looking very seriously at them, you know, brushing their shoulder off like they've, you know, and I got those, I, can, I got those handled. No one, no one walks away from a serious look at the Ten Commandments in this way. Jesus covers these things. There's no way that this man has kept the rules, and that, that all he needed to know was a few more rules and he would get into the kingdom by his own righteousness. He's like the Pharisee from last week, right? says, I thank God I'm not like that guy. I've done much better. He has a false confidence. False confidence will keep you from entering the kingdom. It's like we said, being able to get low enough to humble yourself as a child. If If that's the hurdle you can't get over, it will keep you from entering God's kingdom. Secondly, though, Jesus then challenges him to part with his worldly possessions. He says, right, sell all you have. And distribute it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Now, at this point, the guy stops (laughs) strutting his his stuff, doesn't he? Because he's got great wealth. He doesn't want to part with his goods. He has great riches, doesn't want to get rid of them. So the question then becomes, is the money, are the riches what's wrong with this man? Are the riches what's wrong with this man? And the answer to that is yes and no. Right? I mean, the, yes, the, they were the problem because they were holding him back from entering the kingdom and following Jesus. But also, no, because it isn't the money per se. It is this man's attitude with his money. It isn't sinful to have money, to be prosperous, to be successful. But your attitude, his attitude towards these possessions were the thing that were keeping him from the kingdom. He had a hold of something that was of greater value to him than Jesus. That's the big idea. He had a hold of something that was of greater value to him than Christ himself. And asking for this and finding the man's refusal 
Jesus uncovers his breaking of the first table of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. What is the man, what is what gets revealed? This, this man has a God and it isn't the true God. It isn't Jesus. It isn't God the Father. His true God is money. That which gets your affection, that which gets your allegiance, that which you bow down to, that the thing that controls your schedule, that gets your stress, your worry, your excitement, that is the thing you worship. And this rich young ruler, his problem wasn't that he had money. His problem was that he was found to be worshiping his money. Jesus will tolerate no competitors. Jesus will tolerate no competitors. You know, how much does this guy have wrong? It's, it's fascinating to look at this, this rich young ruler. Because we tend to think sinners and those who aren't entering the kingdom are people who are just full of problems, right? I mean, you look around the world and, oh my gosh, this person's such a wreck, such a mess. Obviously, they're, they're not going to make it. And that's kind of our general idea. We'd look and, boy, these people are full of problems. How much does this guy have wrong? One thing. One thing. Jesus only points to one area, but it's a big area to have wrong. We tend to think that we're fairly safe if we don't do anything too terrible or if the terrible things that we do, we don't do them to extremes. Like we think, well, you know, I don't, I don't, do, I don't do too many terrible things. Or we say, well, you know, I do terrible th- I do things I shouldn't do, but you know, I, I, don't, I do them pretty lightly or pretty infrequently, you know, or I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't do them all the time. Or I'm not as bad as the next person. Yeah, I, I, I do sin in the same way, I suppose, but, but not as bad as the next person. And we think that we, we roll back the, the con- condemnation upon ourselves. But the reality is we, we think, you know, none of the sins I commit, they're not as bad as murder. And, and even though they're sinful, I don't go to them in extremes. But the reality we see here is that it doesn't take a great many things to ruin a soul. One great thing will do the job just fine. It doesn't take a great bunch of things to ruin a soul or to keep you from the kingdom. One great thing does the job just fine. It doesn't take a great many things to ruin a soul. One great thing, and I don't mean great like it's a great thing, I mean one big thing in your life will do the job just fine. We may say, I'm not the person who has more things wrong with me than I can count, but maybe so. But if we have one thing that competes, if you have one thing that competes in your heart against Christ, is that not enough? Look at the rich young ruler. He had one thing. He had money and he loved it and he didn't want to part with it. How can one thing keep him from the kingdom? But it is. It is. One competitor, one even welcomed competitor is too many. J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary on Luke. He says, Many are ready to give up everything for Christ's sake, excepting one darling sin. And for the sake of that sin are lost forevermore. There must be no reserve in our hearts if we would receive anything at Christ's hands. We must be willing to part with anything, however dear it may be, if it stands between us and our salvation. We must be ready to cut off the right hand and pluck out the right hand, right eye, to make any sacrifice and to break any idol. Life. We must remember eternal life is at stake. One leak neglected is enough to sink a mighty ship. 
one besetting sin obstinately clung to is enough to shut a soul out of heaven. The love of money secretly nourished in the heart is enough to bring a man in other respects, moral and irreproachable, he's doing well. The love of money secretly nourished in the heart is enough to bring a man down to the pit of hell. One thing. It's a sobering reality when we think about this rich young ruler. What this rich young ruler has is a theoretical valuing of God. Confesses a love for God, keeps the law, wants to follow the Ten Commandments, wants to follow at least the second table. But when it comes to the practical application of that love for God, the actual and practical valuing of God is nowhere to be found. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I want to keep the commandments. I want to honor God. Jesus says, okay, go sell all your money and come follow me. <laughs> well, as long as I, I want to follow and, and value and treasure God, as long as he doesn't compete with what I really value and treasure, which is my own money, which is this other thing I hold dear. As long as I, I'm all for Jesus, as long as he doesn't compete with what I really value over here. The question, he has this theoretical valuing of God. We have people, we have many like that in our context today. We go around and as elders, we went around, you know, and talk to people about, you know, just their involvement with us here and what's going on. And, you know, it's funny. Everyone you talk to knows they should be here. Everyone you talk to is, is convicted. They think, oh, you know, I should be uh, more, more uh, faithful in my walk with God. I should care more. I should pursue these things more. I, I know I should be here. But when it comes down to it, they have, and they would say, I value, I, can, I take God very seriously. If you were to walk out on the street this morning, you would find people who take God and confess in a theoretical reality, I take God very seriously. But when it comes to the practicality of do they, when that, when that theoretical valuing of God competes with anything else, with the, the thing they really value, Jesus loses every time. He loses every time. They think he's valuable until it competes with something that we think is more valuable. What wins your heart? What wins? When there's this competition that goes on inside of you, what wins at the end of the day? Well, what wins is what you value. We have people, you know, I mean, I'll stop. When it comes to your quiet time, when it comes to your praying and reading of the Bible, things like that even, what competitors win in your life? The question comes at us like this. You believe in Jesus, but do you believe in him as Lord? And if so, if you know Jesus is the Lord of the universe, if you know that he's the one that has redeemed you, if you know that he's the one that has purchased your forgiveness and reconciled you to God, then when anything comes and competes with him, that thing loses because Christ is Lord. Christ is over all. What competes in your heart? Maybe money is the thing, like the rich young ruler. Ask how much of your joy, how much of your security, how much of your peace is tied up in your bank account. When it gets low, does it make you depressed? When you get a deposit and it grows, is that what makes you happy? Is that what finds you find your security? How much of your future joy is dependent upon Projects where you're going to get more money. How much of your money are you glad to part with for the benefit of others? When it competes with Christ, joy in Christ, life in Christ, security in Christ, when money competes, does it lose or does it win? Many other people think that your opinions of others compete with Jesus for your affections. How much do you value 
or get caught up in what others think of you. If you get a compliment, does it totally rewire your day? And so that finally I'm on cloud nine because somebody, somebody valued me and recognized me. Or if someone doesn't like what you're doing and they tear you down or they have a, they have a criticism of you and it throws you into a depressive slump, is that going up against the valuing of Christ, that Christ values you and Christ and knowing your place in him, if that loses your valuing of people and your valuing of people wins, this is Christ not being Lord over your life. What about physical appearance? Are you totally tied up in this tent that fades away? What about control? Do you love to master your own life? And if if I lose control, the thing that I worship is that I'm in charge. Life goes my way. I get my schedule. My opinions get heard. And if this comes down, if Jesus wants to conflict my schedule, my control, if Christ's control Conflicts my control. Christ is going to lose. I want to have it my way. I want to have it my way. Are you the Lord of your life or is Jesus? The reality is there are two kinds of people. But the classifications aren't those who have false confidence and quiet competitors and those who don't. So we think that, like the the statement was, uh, false competitors and... and, um, what was it? False competitors and welcome, no, false assurance and welcome competitors keep us from the kingdom. We think there's two kinds of people, those who have false assurance and welcome competitors and those who don't. The reality is there's two kinds of people, those who have false assurances and welcome competitors and refuse to see it, and those who have false assurance and welcome competitors and are broken by it and are repentant and are confessing and are looking to Christ, the classifications, the separation between those who can see and, and will confess the reality and those who won't see it and won't confess that reality. If you can't see your struggle to come to Jesus as a child and to confess your false confidence and the welcome competitors that there are for your heart, pray that God will open your eyes to see it because they are battling in your heart all the time. False assurance is creeping up on you all the time. Here you sit on a Sunday morning and I am glad to see you. I love to have you here. But there's a false confidence that can come from that of where, you know what, hey, I'm, I'm, I think I've got a little swagger. God should be, if God is pleasing you in anything more than what Christ has done, you have a false assurance. If, and the competitors in your heart, they are there. They are there. And if you can't see that, pray that you can see that clearly. The difference is not those who have them and those who don't. Both have them. One refuses to see it and one is broken by it and comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason why it's so important to see this is because there is good news for all who come to him with clear eyes seeing this and mouths full of this confession. The accounts from this morning end with this famous statement of Jesus, right? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, that, that means exactly what it means. It's not, there's no hidden language here. He's saying a camel, we all know what a camel is, right? It's got the humps on the back. It's this giant thing. And I don't care if you've got a crochet needle. The, the eye of that needle is not going to get a camel through it, is it? And that's exactly what he means. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. But we know that Jesus goes on to say that with God it is possible. On your own, you are never getting that camel through the eye of the needle. But with Christ, 
there is forgiveness. It is what he came to earth to do. With Christ, there is a filling with new affections. Christ not only removes the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. And as we see him for the treasure that he is, our priorities get reordered. Our joys get properly reestablished upon him as the ultimate good. So this morning, as we come to communion... Do so as one confessing and trusting in Christ. Confessing every competitor against Jesus for your affection. Ask God. God, give me eyes to see. What are the things in my heart that are competing for your affection? Where are the times in my life where something comes up against what you have for me and this other thing loses? What is that? And confess it. Confess it. Do not let it keep you from Christ. No Confess every competitor against Jesus for your affections, knowing that if it were up to you, if it were up to your strength, this competitor would earn you justice and hell for all of eternity. It is a thing that will keep you from the kingdom of God. But also knowing that though entrance into the kingdom is an impossibility for you on your own, through the work of Christ, it is an assured reality. It's what communion is about. Christ's broken body and shed blood for you, for the forgiveness of your treasuring a thousand things other than Christ. There is forgiveness. There is renewal. And in this is given the power of greater affections for the one who is truly deserving of all of them. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to see the competitors, the welcome competitors that we entertain in our life. We know, Father, there is no greater treasure than you yourself. When we think of what is given to us in the gospel, it is the reality that we get you. We get fellowship with our creator. We have a renewed righteousness and a renewed relationship with you. That is the treasure. Father, give us eyes to see this morning the greatness of that treasure found through the gospel. Give us conviction over the competitors that we entertain in our life for the affection that you deserve. That we might be quick to repent, to examine ourselves this morning, to repent and to run to the cross, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and that he would renew our affections for you and you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.